Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack, Associate Editor at the magazine, and today I'm joined by Chris Clark, who is a critic and senior curator at the Glucksman in Cork, and Anne Massey, who is Professorial Fellow at the University for the Creative Arts in Farnham. Anne will be reviewing Postwar Modern, New Art in Britain from 1945 to 1965, which is currently on show at the Barbican Gallery in London. But first, we will begin with Chris, who is reviewing the Venice Biennale and the curated exhibition by Cecilia Alemani, The Milk of Dreams, which takes its title from Lenora Carrington's notebook made while living in Mexico, and which later became published as a surrealist set of stories and drawings for children. Chris, I wondered if we could begin by discussing the initial premise of the, of the Biennale and what you thought it signalled and what curatorial shifts it perhaps indicated. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting proposition to start with uh, with a piece which I, I think it's kind of more represented in spirit. I think in the exhibition than as kind of being about a centerpiece thing. I know Leonora, I know the work in the Milk of Dreams itself, the, the children's book, and another painting by Leonora Carrington, you know, forms part of the show. But it's it's kind of not worn too heavily, I think. Um, mm -hmm. But certainly, kind of even beforehand, it, it does kind of flag up that what you're going to see, I think. Uh, within the exhibition was something that very much kind of drew on the kind of fantastical or or the surreal. Um, so it, it definitely kind of put you in that frame of thinking, I think, even going in there. Uh, that's going to be something that has kind of a, a dream-like kind of quality to it uh, that uses kind of, kind of mythology, um, that uses kind of fantasy and fairy tale kind of aesthetic to it, which I think generally uh, is, is something that was kind of sustained throughout the exhibition. Um, although I think it actually takes a very... Uh, much like Leonora Carrington's work uh, has a very kind of dark edge to it as well that it's uh, uh, that underneath the kind of you know this kind of you know fabulous kind of exterior there's um, actually some quite kind of dark myths kind of uh, uh, underneath the surface. Yeah and of course it's the first Biennale uh, post-Covid so a lot of people felt this was a chance to get back together and have a kind of moment uh, to reflect and kind of yeah come back together and sort of have these conversations. Um, did you feel that was in step with some of the exhibition making and the ideas around the show? Or how much did you feel like this was about a reflection on the past few years uh, going in? Um, not explicitly. Um, I don't think there, there was very little work there that kind of felt like it was kind of, you know, hard P politics. Um, but I remember even shortly before I left, kind of reading an interview with uh, Cecilia Alemani, where she was talking about that experience of kind of putting the show together and saying how that extra year actually had a big impact. But also ideas of kind of around, you know, the, the absence of travel, uh, the fact that a lot of research was kind of taking place online. Uh, so I think it kind of informed the exhibition in more kind of an off-kilter way. Mm -hmm. um, I would certainly say that... Um, it felt like a show that benefited from the extra time. And it also had, at least initially, a sense of kind of the introspective, I thought. Um, you know, when you kind of talk about, you know, dreams and the surreal, uh, you know, it has that association with kind of an inner reality. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing as well, that it, on some level it used this kind of uh, dream-like overarching narrative or framework to the show um, to just subtly kind of talk about more political real-world issues. Mm -hmm. But they were certainly there when you kind of looked at the work um, that I think maybe the initial kind of thought that, oh, this is a, a Biennale that isn't explicitly political, um, actually kind of found that addressed in a much subtler way than, than I would have anticipated. It's true, isn't it? I think overall, you know, it would often, it seemed like coming out of the context of some, I would say, many other exhibitions, perhaps 
the past few years, I can think of even documentary in a way, uh, where mm-hmm. there's been more of an attempt to show politics in a more direct sense. And I think you might think of uh, works by here, forensic architecture, et cetera, yeah. and how that's kind of formulated a, a series of thinkings and practices, which I do consider to be completely valid. Uh, but this exhibition, in some senses, almost felt like a repost or some sort of move away from perhaps that tendency uh, towards the dream. Yeah, world. and I mean, you can't help but compare every Venice Biennale to the one that came before. And it's, it's very different from Ralph Rugoff's one, which is, you know, is this kind of sturm und drang, you know, bombastic, uh, <laughs> very political, very spectacular. I mean, this is a much... Um, yeah, it was, I don't want to say quieter because actually a lot of the work in it is not quiet. Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of big installations, there's kind of big moments in there. Um, but it certainly wore it much less. It was worn much more lightly, I think, than than the previous one. Um, and you always kind of wonder that, to some extent how deliberate that is, or if that's just reflective of a certain kind of curatorial uh, standpoint that, that that the person brings to it. Um, but I thought it was kind of interesting to kind of think back to that 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 previous that previous show in comparison to this one, and the and the sense that it it feels like it was completely in your face. It didn't feel like kind of grand gestures. It really let the kind of artists lead on it. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about some of the specific works in a moment, but let's keep on the subject of the actual some of the curatorial frames because I think I've seen I've read that Cecilia Alamani thought it's sort of broken it down into three main themes, metamorphosis, and uh, then the subject of the kind of technology machines and so on affect how that affected the body and continues to affect the body through past and present, and then relationships to other species, animals, and the planet. So mm-hmm. these are quite broad categories. And, and, and amongst that, we find familiar favorites, I would say now of the of the, uh, of the of the Biennale world, I mean, in terms of theorists, we have Donna Haraway, Ursula Gwynn, and so on. So we see some, some familiar names in the mix. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how, you know, and then we can maybe center in on some perhaps works that may be more indicative of that, that sort of that mindset or me- methodology of thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's a broad brush to it. I, I think, you know, when you kind of initially look at, um, you know, her proposition for for the Biennale, it's, you know, you're talking about kind of post-humanism, you're talking about technology, you're talking about spiritualism, you're talking about uh, ecologies. Uh, so there's a, a lot to cover. And of course, like, you know, one of the things about uh, something that's as, as massive as, as Biennale is that you can actually kind of stretch out those kind of themes. You can let yeah. them play out. Um, but yet I would continue, I would still say that there isn't much in there that feels so didactic about it. Um, and again, this kind of goes back to kind of a softer politics too, in the way that even the way technology is addressed, so you know, this kind of idea of, you know, within these kind of time capsules, this notion of kind of, you know, one piece of seduction of the cyborg, for example. Um, and yet it's it's kind of building that into ideas of kind of automata, um, these kind of early machinery, these kind of experiments. Um, that I thought was kind of an interesting way to kind of not necessarily propose those things as something that's very much about the now or the future, uh, but they really kind of uh, embed them in this kind of early modernism, in this uh, yeah. um, in these kind of early avant-garde uh, gestures and experiments. Yeah, it, did, it definitely did that. It showed a historical pathway through these subjects that perhaps, you know, we can imagine in other hands we'd have a lot more and what was maybe conspicuous in its absence was works around VR or AI. 
other kinds of technology yeah. that perhaps did you think? Yeah, and it has a tactility to it as well. I think, you know, that's something that it, I, I'm always interested in that, the way that kind of curators kind of kind of demystify, I guess, you know, their own curatorial process. And I think there's, there's kind of an analogy to be made there with the way that some of the kind of more technological work or the mechanical work, it kind of showed its nuts and bolts. Mm. So, and I can't help but kind of, you know, I, I know we're talking about the overall kind of framework that, that she was working with, but even when you kind of talk about individual works and things like, you know, you know, Mira Lee's piece, which, you know, this kinetic sculpture, but it's kind of oozing liquefied clay and you, you yeah. know, you can see the machine pumping through it and everything. So this kind of revelation of kind of, you know, the underlying technologies or the actual labor that informs um, mm -hmm. even things that are, might seem very kind of cutting edge technology. So I thought that was kind of a, a smart take on it as well, that um, it wasn't technology for the sake of spectacle or for kind of showing off the latest hardware. Yeah. Um, it was very much kind of grafted within this, this notion of technology as, as a tool, as something that's kind of handmade. Yeah. And also an incredibly sort of a more visceral or bodily relationship yeah. that was seemed to be kind of continual a more of a focus rather than something abstract uh, yeah. and that that cut through also in terms of painting figuration etc cetera, etc cetera. so there was a kind of return to the body i say return i never feel like it went away but like you know that was very much central <laughs> i think in the show yeah it's i mean it's really all about yeah. the body isn't it so yeah. even the work that is you know maybe a little less representational and, and again you know i know one of the big highlights for a lot of people for myself was this uh, delcy morales uh, earthwork piece uh, you know earthly yes. paradise uh you know which is kind of large obstacle <laughs> installation yeah. sculpture of of kind of packed earth with kind of sense of kind of cloves and cinnamon um, and that's a bodily experience as well so it, it kind of it, yeah, I know we often talk about installation being immersive, but it's I think it's one of the first times that I kind of saw people like commit themselves to it so much and you know, kind of taking off their face masks and <laughs> inhaling the work. Uh, but yeah, and you get a real sense of your kind of presence within it with an installation like that. And that felt like something that kind of was threaded throughout um throughout uh, certainly in the arsenale, I think, which is you know, that place where a curator can really stretch mm -hmm. out. Um, there were a number of kind of big moments like that, which which I think really let artists, and in a lot of cases, quite young artists, um, kind of just unfold their work, you know, gave them a lot of space to kind of create something that you, you felt like you were very much part of. Mm. It's true. I think that work was actually quite, yeah, it was quite moving in a funny sort of way because of that experience of being surrounded by something so sort of physically overwhelming, the, set, the smell and the physical sense of the soil. Um, I think it, it is rejuvenating, to, I think, as well. Yeah. You, know, you always have that thing in Venice where it's, it, there's so much going on and yeah. it's packed within such a short period of time that, you know, people are kind of run, <laughs> they run through the, their, their paces there. And you kind of get to this moment. And, of course, you're following a certain pathway through this kind of massive earth. Mm. But at the same time, you know, you're encouraged to slow down. You, you, you breathe it in and you actually, like, it felt, it felt like this kind of, infusion of kind of healthiness almost in a way yeah. um so i think i think that was that had a lot of impact certainly on me i think on a lot of people i kind of saw there who were really kind of you know coming back to it and kind of spending a little bit of time in there you know and also it's echoed at the end of the show with precious okiyama uh or their work um you know in which had a similar kind of cascade of woodland and labyrinthine connections to the movement and you know, there was also it was it was nice to see these echoes through the show as a whole. 
Yeah, it kept coming back to certain certain things like that. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, that particular work, uh, Precious Okoyemon's installation at the end, I thought, I thought that felt like, yes, it's a grand finale, but actually what it didn't feel like was something that was separate from some of those kind of instances mm-hmm. before. It kind of built towards, built towards, it called back to earlier parts of, because of course you have to remember that, you know, the, the, the arsenal is so big <laughs> that you feel that, you know, as you pass through it, you're passing through multiple exhibitions and it's nice to have those kind of callbacks. There's kind of moments that then you can relate back to something that was at the outset of the exhibition. And I think that happened quite a bit, actually. There were kind of instances there where you can kind of correlate something that you probably saw 45 minutes before, or two hours before yeah. with another piece. It's kind of threads that were kind of really nicely paced throughout uh, the Arsenale. The exhibition was also faultlessly designed. Do you think the extra year helped produce a more gallery standard looking exhibition? Very, very considered, I thought. And, you know, yeah. I, I kind of, I know, um, I know that she's working with, you know, exhibition designers on this as well. And again, yeah. it's that thing of, you know, as a spectator, as somebody going through these things, you're, you're very aware that there are particular moments. And so, for example, the opening space where you go in there and you see, mm-hmm. you know, some, Simone Lee's kind of massive <laughs> bronze yeah. statue and then these, you know, um, uh, Belgis Ion collagraphs around it as well. But also things like this kind of shade of blue that was used on, on the walls there, which is, you know, I, I think sometimes the impact of those, those kind of decisions, it's just it just felt completely inviting. And then just you subscribed and, and, and submitted yourself, I think, to this, mm. the exhibition right from right from the beginning. And I think if you can maintain that, which I don't know how you can, I think, you know, there are always going to be lulls in that. But if you can generally kind of maintain that kind of sensibility, uh, I think that's a, that's quite a coup. Yeah, it's true. And, and then within that, I suppose we see uh, a kind of a few instances of where younger artists are sort of introduced and perhaps they seem to be slightly more outside of the curatorial feel in a way they kind of they rippled in in a different sort of you know different way and I suppose we're just trying to represent things that are currently going on do you want to say a little bit about some of the younger artists in the mix and how they were kind of brought into the overall the overall exhibition yeah I mean there are artists there I think who are younger who I might be a little bit familiar with some of whom were have maybe been around for a while and I wasn't familiar with uh, but there are definitely some kind of takeaways um, in terms of, you know, um, there was, um, and I'm going to probably mispronounce her name, but Lithuanian artist, Egle Budvitita, I think, uh, who did a, 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 I'm, gonna, I'm sure yeah. that's completely wrong, but um, there's dots over E's and everything there, um, but had a, a film piece, which actually was originally made for the Riga uh, Biennial, um, called Songs from the Compost, that I thought was absolutely stunning. Um, and it's a work that I kind of uh, talk about a bit in my review, uh, which is essentially um, this uh, kind of group of adolescent, quite androgynous uh, young people, some of whom have kind of prosthetic talons on their fingers or kind of barnacles. Um, and they kind of just interact with the landscape in a way. So they're kind of wrapping themselves around trees and mm. um, kind of falling through sand dunes. And then there's this kind of weird auto-tuned uh, kind of hymn-like soundtrack uh, kind of saying, you know, I'm a cyborg and I, I, I can't remember this, uh, you know, offhand exactly. But I just thought it was kind of filming you sat down in and I was like, okay, I'll give this, you know, because you're aware quite early in the show, there's a lot to see, but you're like, okay, I'll give this a bit of time. And it just absolutely immersed me. Um, really kind of a nice collision, I think, of, you know, some of the kind of ideas around kind of prosthesis and technologies and the cyborg that had been filtered throughout the exhibition. Um, 
but was done with, I think, such kind of delicacy and beauty. It was absolutely mesmerizing, I thought. So a, a real discovery there. And then, of course, I was like, um, I thought, given a big amount of space there to do these kind of large swathes of painted fabric and these uh, kind of glass vitrine box sculptures with it. Um, and it's just a hand over a really like a, a, a very giant part of a, an exhibition to let that artist kind of stretch out practice, um, I thought was, um, was, was quite brave, but actually very effective as well. Yeah. Um, and then within that, we get some of the more established figures as well. So there's larger rooms connected to, uh, showing Puerto Rego's works, Chilia Vacuna, yeah. And Barbara Kruger. So this is also this other counter narrative or this other narrative of yeah. you know, more established names and they're given quite prominent displays as well. What did you make of, of that? Um, you know, again, it's like uh, that thing of kind of a series of uh, solo representations. I mean, it's it's always good to see a, you know large Barbara Kruger installation, and it felt fitting. I think. That was interesting to me is that it kind of came quite towards the end. So you kind of feel like in a way that there's kind of a narrative building, which is almost a chronology towards kind of technology. And of course, actually, after that, you have, you know, works like, you know, Precious Okoyaman as well. So it kind of brings it back as well. So it felt quite nicely kind of uh, positioned in there. And, and, you know, similarly, I think, you know, Paul Rego's work in the Giardini, I thought was, was, again, kind of a fantastic moment to kind of show, I guess, yeah, this is something that is built all through the show, but it's, it's show that there are kind of predecessors for this practice as well, that when we talk about, you know, cyborgs and automata, you can also talk about Polareo's sculptural mm -hmm. figures, these kind of puppet-like kind of mm -hmm. creatures. You can talk about, you know, Barbara Kruger's sustained exploration of, you know, technology and media and how it kind of informs, uh, you know, society and the way we, we move as individuals. Um, so again, it was these constant, constant throwbacks to um, to a real history of this kind of work being done. It's true, uh, but yeah. very nicely integrated. I thought yeah. the way that they they're all kind of pulled together. Yeah, and I think also like Chile Vicuna. I mean, yeah. beautiful to see that work. Um, you know, kind of stunning. Quite early in the Giardini, I think as well. So you know, I think you know it becomes that kind of practice becomes something that I think you know, filters through is you can see the ramifications of that kind of practice later on in younger artists and artists from all over who are kind of exploring that idea of kind of, you know, allegory and mythology uh, to address, again, kind of a politics, but never a heavy-handed didactic politics, and one that's always kind of approached through kind of dream and myth. And, uh, you know, it's funny seeing the Barbara Kruger works, because I I, I feel like they're so redolent of a particular era of, uh, well, 1980s America, American culture, really. But um, so even encountering them here, it definitely threw a kind of memory or a historical thing of like, OK, we're back to this to this moment. Um, I wonder what you thought of something about, I mean, to me, some of the pairings in the Giardini were also quite intriguing and not necessarily obvious pairings. Um, for instance, you know, Alexandra Parici and Louise Lawler, or even the Trockel and the, um, God, the find the name of the artist here, uh, Andrews. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, this, there's not necessarily, they weren't necessarily clear or obvious pairings. I wondered what you thought about some of those decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was quite playful, perhaps, in a way that maybe the Arsenale had more of a 
clear trajectory. Maybe the Giardini was a little bit more lyrical. Did, is that what you did you come to? I think it kind of has to be. I think the. Yeah. I mean, I think the Giardini is it's such an awkward space. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I've I found this now over you know writing about like several Benedettis. <laughs> yeah. I always end up kind of really going after the Arsenali as the place where it's like that's where the curatorial vision comes alive because there is something about that central pavilion that is you you have to kind of retrace your steps it's very easy to kind of turn around it doesn't have that same kind of you know intentional kind of trajectory that you can set up um and i always wonder how to deal with it i think some of those combinations some of those juxtapositions did not really work for me um i'm thinking in particular of um, the rosemary truckle and i it kills me that i can't even i don't have her name here in front of me, but I, I kind of struggle a little bit to make those come together. I mean, what I, I did think the Jardini did quite well was um, in terms of the time capsule um, idea, these kind of historical sections that were kind yeah. of built in there within, within the show and that kind of threw back to certain kind of themes of kind of concrete poetry or the idea of the vessel or the idea of, you know, the, um, you know, the cyborg or early computers. Um, and I thought that particularly the one that was built in the Giardini called Witch's Cradle uh, was absolutely kind of got it completely got it pretty, pretty right on. And this is, you know, a, 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 a room um, carpeted in kind of a really plush yeah. gold carpet with gold painted walls. Um, and then all these works that then kind of spoke of ideas of, you know, metamorphosis of, um, yeah, of of the body of kind of transforming of hybrid creatures, um, and it had things like you know uh, Leonora Carrington's work was in there in Claude Cahun, but also like fittingly mirrored Oppenheim because I think one of the things I immediately associated with that room was the fur cup and the holster. Yeah, it felt like you were enveloped within this. I think actually there's a place in the Arsenal, one of the time capsules in the Arsenal as well, which is uh, the one called a leaf, a gourd, a shell. It's quite a long title, which yeah. is about kind of the idea of the vessel and very much felt like you were stepping inside of a kind of a vessel as well. So I think that kind of marriage of kind of form and content really worked best in some of these time capsules, which, you know, on some level as a historical representation or a way of kind of showing your research, I can always be a little bit dubious of, but I think in this case, they, they became kind of one of the strongest components of the show throughout. Yeah. I mean, also, it's interesting, you know, referencing even the Mary Oppenheim and the cup and so on. It made me think also that the exhibition, there was only a few moments maybe that stood out beyond the somewhat staid or familiar examples of maybe, let's say, art history and, and uh, what art looks like in a way. Um, you know, and I think here, maybe even like Sitzel Manika Hansen's work, which had the erotics and the disturbing sort of S&M's practice. And there was very few examples like that beyond, you know, where you've got something a bit more discordant or, you know, maybe Mariana Simnett's work or even Peace yeah. work. There was kinds of maybe more of an attempt. Perhaps that's also interesting that are actually London-based art or have lived in London at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, the Mariana Simnett one, I should yeah. mention as well. It's yeah. something else. I mean, like a deeply disturbing, troubling mm. film yeah. or series of films and installation with a tail kind of leading up to it as well. Um, and it's, it's it's interesting for for a show, I think, that kind of often borders on the grotesque or the abject. Um, mm. I think that was a moment where you really felt it. I mean, it was, yeah, like it's a stunning film, but also like a, a real sense of kind of repulsion and discomfort in there. Yeah. Um, and of course, I, I watched it all the way through and I think about halfway through again, of course. Um, just just to see what that kind of feels like in the context of a, of an exhibition which is kind of about you know about these kind of underlying 
kind of the id. <laughs> yeah. Often the Biennale is seen as the bellwether of artistic practices, if not even curatorial interests. Do you think this is one of those years that will signal a shift in broader concerns? Is it more? I mean, I, I would hope so. It's certainly, it, it's stayed with me so far. And I know I've been kind of obviously focused on kind of reviewing and, and thinking about it, thinking through it. Um, it does feel like it's a moment. And I don't know how much of that is triggered by the fact that it's a return to Venice. It's, you know, that it has been delayed that I think people wanted, want you know, people want the show to be um, kind of a landmark one. Um, it feels to me like there are a number of works and artists and ideas, I think, within it that have legs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm weary of kind of saying this is the one to remember. <laughs> of course. Because, uh, yeah, I don't want to put it on the record. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think quite strong, quite strong, all right. Um, and, yeah, it's just some beautiful kind of design sensibilities, some very like it felt very considered very kind of well thought in terms of not just its selection of artists and so the way it kind of manifests some of those themes but the experiential quality of it you know as a, as a spectator somebody who's kind of moving through these spaces it felt very sensitive to the way you move from one artwork to another mm -hmm. the way you kind of you know, gradually accumulate and kind of build this kind of sense of, of, of the exhibition without being super explicit about it, but letting you kind of feel it as opposed to telling you what it's about, mm. which feels fitting, fitting for the kind of overall idea of the show anyways. Yeah, and perhaps maybe that's the thing. Maybe they need to invite curators three years in advance as opposed to two. Maybe they need a longer run in to make this work. <laughs> triennial. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, do you, do, I suppose we could literally like give a quick overview of some of the pavilions, um, yeah. highlights or standouts for you. Did you have any particular ones? Uh, I mean, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I thought the National Pavilions weren't as much of a standout this time around as last. Yeah. I think very much the focus for me this time and, and the thing that I'm taking away from it is uh, Cecilia Alemani's show. But saying that, um, there were a few that really, that really hit. I think Simone Lee. I mean, obviously a great piece in the Arsenale, but at the US Pavilion was kind of perfect. Um, yeah. Everything from that outer facade with the kind of thatched hot yeah. kind of uh, exterior to it, to that kind of walking into that first piece of the woman kind of over the pool. I mean, really just mm. impeccable, I thought. Um, and I think as well, like Sonia, you know, Sonia Voice, I think, yeah. you know, if you're great ones too, it's certainly one of the most, I think kind of beautifully finished British pavilions I've seen in a while. Um, and also like, there's that, I think that's a gesture that kind of, you know, I don't know how much they take their lead sometimes from the, you know, the, the invited curator on this thing, but you know, this notion of kind of, you know, the invitation or the kind of the homage or the kind of the gesture of kind of bringing, bringing people who are, have been a little bit overlooked or, or maybe yeah. uh, having gained recognition, I thought it was, you know, something you definitely saw in Sonia's installation, something in Zineb Sidera's piece, I think, yeah. as well. You know, this kind of going back to the archives of Algerian cinema, I thought was, uh, um, again, like, you know, incredible film installation kind of backing that up. I thought was, was very smart. And then, I mean, you know, for me, I think things like Melanie Benayo's piece from the Dutch Pavilion, uh, yeah. really, really uh, uh, quite provocative but kind of also stunning, um, stunning and unsettling at the same time. Um, 
Stan Douglas for Canada, I think as well. I, I, yeah. you know, again, I was kind of weary of breaking it up over two venues, having the offsite one, but I think to see the two of them um, actually, and the way they kind of play off each other, the photographs in the Canadian pavilion and this kind of two screen film of, uh, of kind of kids rapping, political rap battles, um, yeah. I think uh, actually really worked as well. Yeah, and they were based at the two different reps were this group were in London and the other, I think, were in Cairo, yeah. if I remember rightly. And they're, they're actually liaising or speak, uh, rapping through phones and conversing. Through yeah, them. and it, it makes you realize that, you know, even though the pavilions are kind of these, you know, fantastic buildings and you can do a lot with them, I think a piece like that, I mean, you you need that extra venue. You need a different kind of space for it. Um, and, always kind of, and I think really the Dutch as well did a swap with Estonia. So, yeah. you know, they have a different kind of building to use and yeah. something that has a different kind of atmosphere, I thought. Uh, you know, it, it really kind of, it can be quite effective, I think, in, in how that work is presented and articulated. Yeah, because the Canada Pavilion is actually in the Giardini is actually quite is relatively small in a way. It is, um, yeah, yeah. It's not a particularly vast space. Um, unlike Germany, which uh, has Maria Eichhorn this year, she was sort of taking apart the the building in a way that I think many commentators have already made that sort of similar to the Hans Hacker work, Germania, which is made in 1993. I don't want to kind of pick holes in things, but it 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 was underwhelming. I thought. Um, yeah. As, as, is that it kind of didn't do it for you when you think of the Hans Hacker piece and all the things that it kind of spoke of, of kind of stepping on those kind of the broken marble and the kind of mm. the acoustics of it and the sound and this kind of big photographic image and the politics of it. Marie Eichhorn's felt like kind of a almost an outdated kind of mode of institutional critique um, that actually once you get past that initial gesture, it, it didn't really do a whole lot for me. No, and also the safety barriers, perhaps, also, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, was, it, was, yeah, it spoke to us in other form of institutionalism. Um, anyway, yeah, that, that, that seemed a bit of a shame. I, th I, I read that the initial plan was to actually take part of the pavilion down. Um, oh, really? And relocate it. So it would almost be an abs you know, a basically an empty site or an empty plot. Um, okay, so I didn't hear that. It was it was so yeah. kind of cloaked in secrecy. Yeah, and in a way, like that's always <laughs> always very exciting for me because you know, I mean, Germany is quite consistently amazing when it it's comes just strong. To yeah, people. but I don't yeah. think obviously the uh, that that came to pass. This quite ambitious project to actually take and and then re, you know return it back to its site. You know, at the end of the Biennale uh, and reconstruct yeah. the entire pavilion. Um, I mean, I should say as well. Um, also, just in terms of, of the pavilions, I mean, you know, certainly I, I'm based in Ireland, and Nebo Malley's Irish show sure. I thought was beautiful, beautiful, um, elegant, and absolutely so kind of subtle and smart. And also, I, I should say, Alberta Whittle's piece for the Scottish Pavilion, yeah, um, again, incredible, incredible to see. So, um, I know I kind of said at the outset that like, oh, the National Pavilions they didn't really do it for me this time around, but of course there's there's always a lot, right? There's always yeah, I agree. I think both. I agree. I thought the Scottish Pavilion and the Irish Pavilion were both great. Actually, I, I thought Alberta Whittle and Neva Malley's work was great. Um, yeah, um, I thought they really stood out actually for very different reasons, but I thought they both yeah yeah did very good work. Um, Good. Well, I feel like we've covered some of the show. I mean, it's a fast, <laughs> I know, uh, we could be here all day. I mean, there's... So, yeah, there's always going to be pieces that we've missed. Um, but, um, you know, there's 213 artists, I think. I think more. so, yeah. yeah. And uh, I've had I've had to do that. I've had to whittle down myself here in terms yeah. of, you know, trying to kind of write something that kind of cohesively 
you know, looks at the, the you know the ideas behind the exhibition, but how it how it actually how it actually kind of plays out, and uh, you just realize this you, you could get you could get lost in it all day easily. Well, that's much like the, much like the, you know it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining this afternoon. And uh, anytime, Chris. Uh, Thanks very much. We'll speak again soon, I'm sure. All right, I'll end it there. And thanks again, Chris, for joining today's programme. His review of Milk of Dreams is in the June issue of Art Monthly. And for listeners interested to know where to buy a copy or how to subscribe to the magazine, please do check our website, www.artmonthly.co.uk. Um, so, Anne, welcome to the show. I just want to say thank you for reviewing Postwar Modern New Art in Britain 1945-65, to 65, which is on at the Barbican. Um, Barbican Gallery in London and it's on till the 26th of June. Um, the show, as you sort of state in your review, it's sort of absent of the triumphal triumphalism and optimism that characterizes, I suppose, that period or what some would say the sort of pop art movement at that time. And this show brings together a more discordant vision of that period. Um, I wondered if we could begin by just mm. saying how you feel about the show or the outline, some of the kind of the concepts of the show, the curatorial decisions in the exhibition and some of the precedents that have informed it. Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, what I thought was it started off really well with a kind yeah. of quite a grim view of post-war Britain. Um, and it was quite striking, especially the main sort of atrium space, I thought was excellent. And the Magda Cordell paintings really yeah. stood out amongst all the sort of doom and gloom. But I felt disappointed because I thought the show's title was 45 to 65. So having been born in the 50s, I remember the excitement of entering the 60s and how fabulous it was, you know, for most people, the cultural yeah. landscape. And there was nothing about that at all. Mm -hmm. And I just found that disappointing somehow. There was no reference to any pop art, really. Um, the whole issue of the independent group, I thought, was sidestepped. Um, although they were there in almost every room. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I think part of the problem is that the show was based on a German exhibition, um, which actually contributed to the catalogue, the post-war art between the Pacific and the Atlantic, 45 to 65, the same dates. And that was fantastic because it, it kind of lifted the lid on that kind of Western-centric approach. And it was a fabulous exhibition. But I think once you focus in on Britain, you can't really avoid the whole issue of social class, which I think yeah. was so important in that period and the sort of boundaries were troubled and I mean it dealt with gender very well I thought it was great to see more women artists on show and obviously the sort of emigre contribution was very much part of the exhibition which was fabulous and sexuality was dealt with but the whole issue of social class I thought was was missing mm -hmm. as it is often in many studies of post-war British culture I feel and it's time to sort of look at that I reckon yeah. and this would have been a really good opportunity to do that. I thought Shelley Baker's photographs or Roger Main's photographs did capture something of working class life at that time including poverty. Do these works not land for you? Is that, is that what you're thinking? 
yeah. some little nuggets around class, but I, I'm just interested to see if you felt they didn't land or they were those things were maybe absent. They didn't, they were sort of very stereotypical, I thought. Yeah. And, um, you know, a certain type of class, which was quite an old fashioned reading of it. Whereas if you think about, you know, going towards the end of the 50s into the 60s, the whole sort of landscape of British social class was being challenged, you know, if you, it, culturally. If you think of, you know, the Beatles or pop mm. artists like Peter Blake and so on, it was all being um, turned upside down. And I think that was missing. And the whole, although we are living through a time of doom and gloom, yeah. granted, so a lot of the exhibition did resonate with me on those terms. Perhaps we also need a bit of hope, you know, and a bit of yeah. um, positivity amongst all this. And I feel there could have been that as as part of the exhibition. There could have been a bit more colour and light and a different reading of the various exhibits almost, because mm. everything was very much cast in a certain aesthetic type that I, I couldn't really agree with a lot of the time. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I do think, and do you know what you mean? It was there is a sort of my it was mired in a certain kind of viewpoint that there was mm. no sense that these things were being transgressed or change was afoot. Perhaps in certain instances, no. it felt very much a calcification of like various ideas in yeah. a certain way. Very and, static. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were moments. I suppose like Gene Cook and John Bradbury, John Bradbury, those paintings in a way equally claustrophobic. Um, but interesting in their tension between these two artists. Do you want to say a little bit about these two works or these two artists? Yeah, I, I, I did enjoy that room and I mm. found it very powerful. Um, and I thought, you know what, she's a better painter than he yeah. is. <laughs> but um, that, that was really striking. And in the next room, the two Sylvia Slee works, um, showing Lawrence Holloway in drag, I thought mm. was uh, fantastic. But then we got, got into the next room, which was meant to be about, um, you know, the independent group, This Is Tomorrow and so on. And it was all read as a very negative kind of, you know, it just didn't fit somehow. Um, so I thought that was, that was a misreading of, of their work in a way, because the independent group was very optimistic about the future and, and you know, sort of seized opportunities mm. with both hands and, um, were really lively and brought that whole American visual culture to life and none of that was present really which I thought was a shame um, I, I think so it was mm. genuinely we thought things were really changing for the better mm. and you got also things like the Festival of Britain wasn't mentioned the founding of the Arts Council the British Council I mean none of this you know the whole kind of Labour government the National Health Service. I mean, it was quite an optimistic time in some ways. Yeah. So I just felt the balance wasn't quite right. Yeah. For me, anyway. I mean, some, I mean, in a way, it's interesting to kind of try to nudge or represent that era in a way that is more, I would say, maybe less optimistic or there was more tensions internally mm. between, you know, idealism and so on. I mean, is there some way in which this exhibition was trying to show a counter-narrative. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
I think there was yeah. there was an attempt to present a counter narrative, but I think it it can't be applied to absolutely everything. You know, it didn't quite work, and it was quite funny. I talked to one of the um, guards, you know, the sort of security guys. Because all it was very um, difficult to look at the exhibition as well. A lot of the boundaries, you know, the wires were very sensitive, yeah. and the labelling was tiny, and I couldn't see a lot of it. So I was trying to get near, and then I couldn't read it. And um, this guard said, "Oh, I've had to go part time because this exhibition's so depressing to begin every day." Um, and it's so difficult that visitors yeah. are finding the experience really challenging. So I thought that, that gave me a bit of an insight as well to someone who's had to stand in there for hours on end. Mm. <laughs> um, so I found that tricky as well, um, the whole layout. Mm. And there were a lot of even mistakes on the labels, sort of dates and things. So I don't know. He said they were going to be redone. So I don't know if that's happened. Yeah. But I think that whole period has always presented a real challenge to everybody. Mm -hmm. It's so diverse and you end up looking at abstract versus figurative, you know, sort of mm. institutional histories. Um, but it's so scattered and diverse, it's quite hard to get a handle on, mm. I think. Yeah, I mean, I was relieved to see that there wasn't the usual suspects in some ways, like, you know, there's no Henry Moore, there's no Barbara Hepworth, which perhaps would seem mm. central to sort of post-war British art. Um, Definitely. But I was kind of also relieved to see a, a different take on that subject as well. So, yeah, you know, it wasn't, I, I didn't find it, uh, you know, I thought there was an attempt to try and articulate a kind of position outside of maybe more some of the more usual names maybe we'd see. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And mm. I think, you know, as a starting point, that would have been fine, but I think there was just something missing um, mm. on the sort of narrative arc that you would expect from that period, which is, you know, based in social history, can't really be avoided, mm. um, was my feeling. And to have no Pauline Boaty, I thought it was a real missed opportunity as well. Um, yeah, it was a shame not to see some of her work in this show. Well, they did one at um, Palant House, didn't they? Yeah. And at Wolverhampton. Um, but that's probably before she became... She is becoming more famous, I think. Thank yeah, goodness. I think there is a sort of... Um, so, yeah. it's, a show, it's interesting because the show is actually quite good in terms of picking up maybe some of the overlooked figures from that mm. period. So it's interesting that someone like that, who is almost historically known as someone overlooked, <laughs> um, yeah. is also then overlooked again. Um, so that's yeah. kind of an interesting take in a way. I mean, there is some great example. I mean, like in the, you talk about in the last stream with the Julian Ayres paintings and with Kim Lim. Yeah, I thought that was lovely. Yeah. 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 And also in that room, there's Amor Shalal Shemza. It's a really nice paintings by him as well. Um, yeah, thought, and, and Frank Rowling. I thought that was kind of an interesting bringing together of different artists' works. Um, that worked well. I think yeah. if if there'd be more rooms, hmm. more on that kind of wavelength, that might have worked better yeah. as a contrast somehow. Yeah, it just lacked a bit of levity about the thing. I think hmm. that we need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I did have to say, I mean, like, there's some really great works. I mean, even like the David Madala piece, the 
even the Gustav Metzger, the liquid crystal. Mm, so yeah, those works. So you know, I think I mean the most striking to me were the mag, two Magda Cordells. Yeah, um, they're just huge, and the color and the vibrancy of them set against the gloom of the rest. I thought yeah. they really shone out, and and it, and it was great to see her work. Yeah, uh, framed in that way. I think that that uh, was fabulous. That was the best bit for me, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. and they were next to the Lynn Chadwick's or near the Lynn Chadwick sculpture, the post-atomic garden, which I thought was a really striking yeah. combination. That was parts. good. Yeah, yeah. I think that and the arrangement of the sculpture. I mean, in within that whole area, I thought was uh, brilliant, and it showed Paolozzi in quite a different light. I yeah. thought, which was interesting. Um. Yeah, so I enjoyed that. It just needed more follow-through, I thought. Yeah. Well, could you say a little bit about the what you say Palazzi in a different light? Do you want to say just a little bit about what you mean? Everything? Well, I think Palazzi's normally looked at as, um, you know, the, the kind of proto-pop artist, and mm -hmm. his collage is obviously, you know, the page from the scrapbook that were first shown at um, the ICA, as the famous bunk performance lecture, it tends to focus more on that, the attention on Palazzi. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think in this, this exhibition, they looked more at his kind of response to the post-war situation. I mean, his own experience during the war was pretty um, traumatic, uh, you know, being imprisoned, mm -hmm. losing his father and uncle and, and so on. So I think it brought that more to light, which was... Um, excellent and you came in and you know the first things you saw were those prints of the heads which are really quite complex and quite angry in a way I think and echoed through in his sculptures mm. with, so I think that worked really well also and seen in contact in the context of the other sculptures as well I think they kind of spoke to each other in a way um, so that I enjoyed that yeah Definitely. Yeah, they were great, those, I thought, the way they were positioned in relation to the mm. work. And equally, Francesca Thomason, Tennyson. Um, yes, and I thought work. that was great. Um, um, you know, yeah, I really enjoyed seeing those. And history and how that's reflected in the work in some ways. Um, yeah, really great. Showing yeah. yeah, really delicate. And of course, they were the uncle and aunt of Yasha Reichard, mm. who's the major one of the major curators at the ICA in the 50s and 60s. Um, yeah, so they, they, I really welcome seeing those. They were great. Mm. Yeah, and the photography was interesting, wasn't it? Um, but it was kind of piecemeal. I mean, there was a bit about hammer prints, but... And that was very confusing, that room. I mean, me and other visitors were trying to match the labels to the what was on display mm. and we just couldn't work it out in the vitrines. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it was really mixed up. So <laughs> it was an attempt there, but I just don't think it, perhaps I ran out of time or perhaps with COVID, it was hard to pull it together. Yeah. Yeah. Thing, but I think overall, I mean, I know we're discussing some of the shortcomings in this exhibition, but there are some really great, mm -hmm. nice pieces in this show. I think anyway, um, yeah, oh, sure, sure, sure. I mean, most people I've talked to find it quite um, powerful. 
It is, I think, some places quite a visceral, visceral exhibition, I think, surprisingly so. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I'm still not convinced. Yeah, I do know. I do know what you mean. There is maybe there are some moments that they could have argued or put forward in different ways. Or um, yeah, you know, there is a kind of uh, there is a kind of maybe a curatorial agenda that perhaps uh, narrows some of the perceptions or views around certain works or ways in which other ideas may have been brought in. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's. Uh... But then you know it's a, the curator is it's their exhibition that mm. you know if they want to put forward a particular aesthetic that's fine I suppose I was just saying to me from a kind of more of a social history type of art art history there was bits missing yeah and I was I was disappointed I guess um, okay and. Well, I think, unless you've got anything else to add, I think we can draw it, draw it <laughs> a conclusion there. I think. <laughs> unless yeah, you've got okay. something else you'd like to share. But um, um, well, thanks for... No, no, that was... Uh, thank you for inviting me. That's been fun. And thanks again to Anne Massey for her review of Postwar Modern, which continues at the Barbican until June 26th. For further details about the exhibition, Anne's review is in the May issue of Art Monthly, and details can be found on our website. This leaves me to thank Chris and Anne for both their contributions to this programme of Art Monthly's talk show and to our listeners. If you'd ever like to contact the magazine, uh, please you can reach us on info at artmonthly.co.uk or you can reach me directly at chris at artmonthly.co.uk. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>